Good morning and welcome to Glendale Christian Church, everyone. My name's Andrew. I'm the preacher here, and I'm really grateful that you've decided to worship along with us today. We continue our series on mountains and the divine encounters that take place upon them. And today, we are in for a treat. For today, we're going to talk about what is, in most likelihood, the most significant mountain ever. The most significant mountain in the Bible, the most significant mountain in history, the most significant mountain anywhere. And yet, to us, we might not even think it looks like that much of a mountain. After all, we live in America and we get to see the Rockies. We've seen and gone around the world and we've seen big mountains. And even some of our Ozark mountains are as grand in size as Mount Moriah. But none are as grand in importance. Now, this is not what Mount Moriah looks like today, but I want to give you a picture of the Judean hills. The Judean hills that surround Jerusalem and that are all about, and this is what they look like unencumbered, but of course Mount Moriah today looks very different. Mount Moriah is at the very heart of the city, Jerusalem. And so Mount Moriah is in fact the very place that the temple was built upon. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible records that King Solomon began to construct the temple, and he did so on Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah has all kinds of importance, for not only was the temple of the Lord, the house of God, the seat of the Ark of the Covenant, in the very presence of God, right here in this very specific location, But then when the temple was rebuilt and rededicated in the time of Christ, he walked around on that same temple mount. Thousands of years later, the crusaders built a church that has that gold dome on it. Now it's known as the Dome of the Rock. And in Jerusalem today, there is more controversy about Mount Moriah than any other mount in the entire world. It is the most valuable piece of real estate in existence. It is everything for just about everyone. For every single monotheistic religion, the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims all point to Mount Moriah. And if you go to modern-day Jerusalem, and some of us went even earlier this year, you will notice the fascinating interplay between the different faiths and this particular mountain. Now, Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, has Muslim control on top of it. And yet, in order to get on top of it, you must go through Jewish security, So every single day, every Muslim who wants to go up to the Temple Mount has to go through Jewish security. And it is the Jews who run security for the Temple Mount, and it's the Christians who want to visit and send so many people throughout the year and try to explain, this is not where the Holy Spirit resides. We are now the Temple of the Holy Spirit. The Temple Mount is so, so important because just outside the wall is where the Lord Jesus was crucified. Mount Moriah is not just the seat of the temple of God, but it is also the place where Jesus died for our sins. There is a small little peak at the base of Mount Moriah called Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull. And this is where our Lord and Savior died in our place. 
But 2,000 years before our Lord and Savior died in our place, and so much before the temple was finally started to be constructed in the 700s BC, there was another event that took place on Mount Moriah. Oh, there were no modern buildings around, but this particular mountain was chosen by God for a very particular task. And here, one of the great patriarchs of the faith, Abraham himself, is tested. Here at Mount Moriah, Abraham is put to the test. Now, Abraham is a really, really important character in the Bible narrative. When you think about the Bible, and you think about how God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and how he established function for all that exists, the very first people he ever made were Adam and Eve. But of course, their children, Cain, Abel, Seth, and others, and perhaps we see the very first exile. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Cain is kicked out for murdering Abel. And in fact, the whole world eventually becomes corrupted. And last week, we talked about the mountains of Ararat, where Noah's Ark came to rest after God wiped out humanity, save eight, and he began to repopulate the earth with those eight people. And repopulate, they did. By the time Abraham comes around, there are lots and lots of people on earth. In fact, so many people, and they became so a, uh, incredibly good at building and constructing that God had to do the Tower of Babel incident and split people based up upon their language, which is why we have so many different ethnicities among the one human race today. Abraham lived in what we know as the Middle East, and back then he was called Abram. And the Bible declares that God shouted out to Abraham, Abraham, leave your family, leave your household, and go to the land I will show you. And Abraham did. You see, Abraham is a man of tremendous faith. The New Testament, in fact, points back to Abraham as the quintessential Old Testament example of faith. In the book of Galatians, chapter 3, the Apostle Paul uses Abraham as an example of Old Testament faithfulness, and the same thing that is credited to Abraham can be credited to us. God credited righteousness to Abraham, not because he was without sin, if you read Genesis 12 through 20, you read plenty of sin that Abraham did. He was not a perfect man. But he was considered righteous by God because of his faith. And Genesis or Galatians chapter 3 says that we too can be reckoned as righteous if we place our faith in what Christ has done. It is faith that gets credited as righteousness. And so we understand the nature of faith from the life of Abraham. Not only did he believe and then trust, but he stepped in faith. And in fact, James chapter 2 tells us that faith without actions is dead. And it uses Abraham as the example. And it says, Abraham, the man whose righteousness was credited by God because of faith, demonstrates that he didn't just believe, he was willing to act upon it. And so it is that faith involves belief, trust, and loving obedience. And Abraham is the Old Testament quintessential example of belief, trust, and loving obedience. And he's known as one of the patriarchs. 
In the New Testament, you'll even hear Jesus talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, his son, and his grandson, were considered the patriarchs, the fathers of the Jewish nation. And this is because God had promised Abraham that he, God, would make Abraham into a great nation. He says this in Genesis um, 12. He says, go and I will show you where to go and you will become the father of many nations. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. This promise is reiterated a number of times between Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, where we find ourselves today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn open to Genesis chapter 12. Otherwise, you can certainly follow along on the screen behind me. But what I want you to pay attention to as we look to Genesis chapter 12 is the faith of Abraham on display. How does he believe? How does he trust? How does he obey? For God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise was simple. I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. I will make you into a great nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed because of you. Well, Abraham was pretty old when he had his son Isaac. In fact, Sarah said, the world is going to laugh when they hear about this guy, and so they called him Isaac. And Isaac went on to have a son, Jacob. Jacob and Esau, Jacob. And Jacob had his name changed to Israel, which is where we get the nation of Israel. And Israel's 12 sons represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Abraham is how the whole nation gets kicked off. And it flows through Isaac and through Jacob. These are the patriarchs. And this is the test of Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you love God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up 
And there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and set off, and they set off together to Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. And so we have this story, this remarkable and profound text. This, the great patriarch Abraham, who's been promised that he will be the father of many nations, is asked to sacrifice and kill his only son. Abraham is already a really old guy. And it is already miraculous that he's had this kid. And now God asks him to slay, sacrifice, and kill his son. How will the promise be fulfilled? How would the promise ever be fulfilled? There is a profundity to this text. And that is why Genesis chapter 22 is the text that the New Testament writers point back to so often when they talk about the concept of faith. There is faith to be found in this chapter. For on this mountain, on Mount Moriah, faith was discovered. Both faith by Abraham and discovered by God. Abraham demonstrated it. Faith was discerned by God Almighty. And we have much to learn about it. But of course, if you know anything about Christianity, you heard the gospel in that chapter too. And so there is an incredible amount of foreshadowing that takes place on the mountain that would become the place of the temple, the very resting seat for God's presence on earth, the very place that God taught more than any other, and the very place that God himself was sacrificed. When God the Father sacrificed his only son in a way that Abraham did not have to. So let's look at this text again and let's try to discern and find the elements of faith and let's look for the foreshadowing for this text is replete with information. Genesis 22, let's reread verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, on a mountain I will show you. God tested Abraham. In our lives, we will have many, many tests. We'll have many trials. We'll have many complications. And the New Testament assures us that we can consider it pure joy whenever we face tests and trials of many kind because it produces in us a perseverance that helps faithfulness continue on. Tests will come, but when they come, there is one right response. There is one right response when God calls out to you, and that response is, here I am. 
Here I am is an incredibly powerful response, for it indicates faith. Here I am says, I believe that the one calling out to me is God Almighty. I demonstrate my trust to him because I am here and it shows a willingness to do what comes next. And what came next for Abraham was to take his son, his only son, whom he loved, Isaac, go to the region of Moriah and there to sacrifice him, kill him dead, and then burn his body as a burnt offering to God Almighty on a mountain that he would show him. That's his job. That is a test. Kill your only son. And the son through whom the promise is reckoned. You're going to be a mighty nation. And yet, I'm going to kill your kid before your kid has any kids. This is a major, major test. But his response is so glorious. Here I am. And this is the first time in Scripture that a faithful man cries out, Here I am, when God gets a hold of him. Now, later, Scripture will tell us that his son Isaac calls out, Here I am, when God tells him what to do. And that his grandson Jacob calls out, Here I am, when God tells him what to do. And then after Jacob's son Joseph was born, 400 years after that, Moses cries out to God Almighty, Here I am! when standing before the burning bush on a different mountain. And it is also Caleb, that mighty warrior of God, that spy who snuck out the promised land and came back and demanded his inheritance. He's the one who cries out, Here I am! Hundreds of years later, the little boy Samuel, dedicated to the Lord, cries out, here I am, and he becomes the high priest who anoints the kings and prophets of Israel. And Jesus himself calls out, here I am. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it tells us that Jesus stands at the door knocking, saying, here I am. And anyone who hears his voice and opens the door, with him, Jesus will enter and dine. Here I am is the right response. In fact, here I am is the response of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, when King David, anointed by that man who said, Here I am, Samuel, wrote these words, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears have been opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Sacrifice and offerings you do not desire. Burnt offerings and sin offerings were not required. Abraham was willing. God told him to go and make one. And he said, all right. And he went in faith. And God said, that is not what I require. What I require is a faithfulness described by that three-word phrase, here I am. Do you say it when God gets a hold of you? There's a long line of believers who have followed the footsteps that began with Abraham. Here I am. And he went early the next morning. He understood the importance of what happened. God said, sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, to me. And so the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac. And when he had enough wood for the burnt offering, he sent out for the place that God had told him about. 
He knew. Right away, God said this, and by the morning time, he knew his son was dead. He knew. I have to kill my own son. I have to plunge the knife into him, drain his blood, and burn his body. That is what God is calling me to do. My son is dead to me. And he went. Well, a very important phrase pops up in verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. The third day is pretty important. And those of you who are biblical scholars understand that it was the third day that Abraham reached Moriah, the third day that God spat out Jonah from the belly of the fish, the third day that Christ himself was raised from the dead, conquering death itself. This is the route that Abraham would have taken. Start at the bottom pin. This is Beersheba. The ruins of Beersheba. Beersheba is the very southern tip of the land of Israel. When the 12 tribes of Israel go into the promised land, it's from Dan up north to Beersheba down south. And that's where Abraham lived. He was at the very southern border of the promised land. And he had to take the Judean hillside. He had to go through, see Hebron, go through the Judean hills, and go to what is modern day Jerusalem. Back then it was known as Salem. And it was run by a different king, but also one of righteousness. A feller by the name of Melchizedek, who was the high priest of God and the king without beginning or end. The pre-incarnate Jesus was hanging out there for a long time. And Abraham, who had already met Melchizedek, had to go back to his backyard. And in Melchizedek's backyard, Salem, he found the mountain of Moriah. And this is where it all went down. And so... Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and come back to you. See the faith? Stay here. We're going to go worship and we're coming back. He knew somehow they were coming back. He didn't know how, but he knew somehow they were coming back. And his faith was so strong that he said, you guys stay here. We're going to go worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. What's very interesting is that Isaac, the young man at the time, had a bunch of wood laid on his back and that he had to go up to the hill upon which he was about to die. There was another only son who had to carry his wooden device of death up the hill upon which he would die. Do you see the foreshadowing? This is the gospel in the very first book of the Bible. Isaac has to carry the wood upon which he will be sacrificed just as Christ was told to carry the crossbeam and then couldn't even make it all the way. Christ had to carry his own cross upon which he was to be crucified. God will never ask you to do something he would not do. A good leader will never ask you to do something that he is not willing to do. And when God the Father tells Abraham, sacrifice your son, don't worry He's willing. When God tells Isaac to take up your wood to the place of your sacrifice, don't worry, he's willing. He was ready. The foreshadowing is thick. And then we see, as the two of them went on together, verse 7, Isaac speaks up and he says to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, replied Abraham, the fire and the wood are here, said Isaac, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Smart kid. He knew it was coming. He could see it coming. Ah, we got all the stuff. 
we got the knife, we got the wood, we got the fire. Uh, where's the thing that's actually going to die, though? Where's this lamb for the burnt offering, Dad? And Abraham answered him, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. The unshakable faith of Abraham. No wonder it's credited to him as righteousness. He believes in his heart. He follows through in action. And he trusts God the entire time. He is the man of faith. And that's the same faith that we must demonstrate. The two of them went on together. And when they got to the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. You wonder if Isaac resisted or if he knew what was coming. Put your hands behind your back, boy. Put the rope around while I cinch this tight. You wonder if his blindfold was placed or if a rope through the mouth. He laid his only son upon the altar that he had constructed and then he reached his hand out and took the knife to slay his son. Because you can't burn him alive. You have to kill him. You have to plunge the knife. You have to drain the blood. You have to burn the body. And so he reached for the knife to slay his son. He grabbed it in his hand. And he was bringing the blade down to plunge and he knew the sound that would emerge and it wasn't the gurgling of blood that would come up from his dying son. It was the shriek of pain that he knew surely would accompany it that I think rattled him most that day. Any of you who are parents, you know the shriek. Any of you who are parents, you, you understand the difference between the cry of hunger and the cry of pain. The cry of desire and the cry of discontent compared with the shriek of physical pain. You all know it. You can all discern it instantly and you all would do whatever it takes to help your child. That is the blood-curdling cry, the earth-shattering shriek that Abraham was about to bring out of his own son on purpose to do the will of God. And as he was bringing his knife down, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied quickly, here I am. There was to be a shriek on Mount Moriah, but not that day. Not that day. Not that year. Not that century. Not that division of the calendar. Not even in the B.C. days. But in the early A.D. time, the only son was sacrificed right there. And you remember from Matthew 27, the shriek that he cried out. It was the one that Isaac was willing to make and that Abraham was willing to induce, but that the father made and that the divine son brought about. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you love God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now who said that? The angel of the Lord. 
Now, the angel of the Lord is a very important character in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. In the Bible, there are three angels that are mentioned by name. You've got Gabriel, you've got Michael, and you've got Lucifer. And there are other angels that are messengers that go and do the will of God. But anytime you see in the Old Testament the capital angel of the Lord when something really spectacular happens, that is a divine messenger. That is the second person of the Trinity on earth doing something. The second person of the Trinity didn't just hang out in heaven until it was time to be born. He was doing stuff. He was doing stuff. He was doing stuff with creation. He was doing stuff on Mount Moriah. He was doing stuff all over. He was slaying 185,000 Assyrians. He was revealing the will of God. He was doing all kinds of things. And he himself cried out to Abraham, 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 here I am, he said. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you love God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. No merely created angel could ever say you have not withheld your son from me when it was God Almighty who said, take your boy and sacrifice him. This is the divine angel of the Lord. This is God Almighty. This is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ on earth in the Old Testament, divinely commending Abraham. There's another only son, and he was the one chatting that day with Abraham. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who's come from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4.9, this is how God demonstrates, demonstrated his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. There was a different only son that had to be sacrificed that day. Now, listen to what the angel says. Abraham looked up in the thicket, and he sees something. He sees a ram. And what he sees the ram caught in is a bunch of thorns. He sees the thicket, and the ram is caught in the thorns. Well, thorns around the head, does it foreshadow the crown of thorns placed upon our Lord's brow? It does. And there was a ram that was found. Now, Abraham said there will be a lamb that's provided, but then there was a ram that showed up. Well, you do know that lambs, when they grow up, either become um, rams or they become ewes if they're boys or girls. So if a lamb survives, a lamb grows up to become a ram unless it's castrated and then it's a weather. But rams are mature lambs. And just as lambs take away sin, as we'll learn in the Old Testament law, rams do too. There was a ram that was to be sacrificed on the Day of Atonement every year, along with some other things. And there are some very specific Old Testament um, laws about the sacrifice of rams that will come when God reveals the law. But here, what we see is a ram who is a lamb all grown up. And Jesus did not come just to die as little eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus. Nope. Nope. He came and he grew and he developed into a fully mature man. Do you know how hard it is for a little lamb to grow into a ram that is without defect and is without blemish? You know, these things like fight each other. They ram into each other. They've got all kinds of defects, all kinds of blemishes. But there was one without defect or blemish that was sacrificed for us, and that's the Lord Jesus. He went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it and burnt it instead of his son. 
So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, the Lord uh, of the Lord, it will be provided. You may have heard the name for God, Jehovah Jireh. That's the Lord provides. It will be provided. The Lord will provide. Abraham knew it was going to happen. The Lord himself will provide the lamb. And he was right. And on that same mountain, the Lord will provide. It will be provided. And so the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants more numerous in the stars, in the sky, in the sands, on the seashore. Now, you biblical scholars understand that I've been holding a card back. You recognize, of course, that Abraham did have another biological son. His name was Ishmael. When God said, you're going to have a son and you're going to be the father of many nations, uh, he and his wife Sarah just didn't think it was going to happen. So through some shenanigans, he slept with Hagar. They had uh, Ishmael and Sarah and Hagar did not get along. But God said, nope, this isn't the one. You, Sarah, yourself will bear your husband Abraham a physical child and he will be the one through whom the promise is reckoned. And so, God considers Isaac the only son because Isaac is the only one through whom this promise is reckoned. Ishmael does not count, and the promise is not given through Ishmael. This is the only son. And so, the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, reiterates the promise that started in Genesis 12 and was reiterated in Genesis 15 and continued in Genesis 17 and now again is once again stated, you will be the father of many nations and all nations will be blessed through you. Your descendants will take possession of the land of their enemies, the cities of their enemies. And through you, uh, your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned with his servants and they set off together for Beersheba, and they stayed in Beersheba. This is it. This is the story of faith and foreshadowing. His faith came to pass. He was willing to do what was told of him, and God himself took care of it. This is the kind of faith that gets credited as righteousness. Now, this story might be hard to remember and hard to reiterate, and so the New Testament gives us a very simple way to understand it. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17, 18, and 19, we hear these words. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. In Genesis 21, verse 12, God very specifically tells Abraham, it's through Isaac that this promise I've given you will be reckoned, not the other guy. It's this. He's your one and only son as far as the promise is concerned. And it tells us what Abraham was thinking. Abraham was thinking, eh, God can even raise the dead. He can take care of this. And so I hope that our faith is this strong. So this week, here's what I want you to do to strengthen your faith. I want you to read Genesis 22. I want you to read this story again and again and again. Read it a number of times. Read Genesis chapter 22. But then, very specifically, I want you to memorize the New Testament summary of it. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. And as you read Genesis 22 and you memorize its summary, you will be able to understand the Word of God more powerfully in your own heart. 
And then I want you to contemplate. I want you to think deeply all week long about the nature of faith and foreshadowing found within Genesis 22. Abraham believed in his heart. He acted it out. He trusted the Lord always to take care of him because belief is, or faith is belief, trust, and loving obedience. And this is the gospel in Genesis 22. And so then here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray, God, prompt me to strengthen my faith. Don't just ask God to strengthen your faith. Ask God to prompt you to strengthen your faith because you're involved. You are involved. You're not involved in your justification or your glorification, but you are involved in your sanctification. And if you want to be more like Jesus, it's time to work. Faith without works is dead, after all. So let us demonstrate faith. Let us have righteousness credited unto us, and then let us follow through in obedience. Would you stand with me as we pray?